I'm on StreamYard. Okay, we're live. Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates. On today's show, I have a very special guest, a returning guest. His name is Harvey Wasserman. We spoke last month about a very important issue here in California, and that, that is about the Diablo Canyon nuclear reactor that is close to San Luis Obispo on the kind of central coast of California. And he's very knowledgeable about the dangers of nuclear power. I kind of share a lot of his views. He has much better refined views than I do, but I learned a lot talking to him. But he also has published a book. He published it this year, February 2022. The title of that book is The People's Spiral of U.S. History from Jig on Sase to Solartopia. And it takes kind of an alternate view of American history. I think the diametrical opposite of maybe what you learn in high school, because uh, there's a lot more elements and, and nuances and, and facets to American history than we're often taught through the media or school, public school at least. And some of the other books I want to mention about that he's written is Harvey Wasserman's History of the United States, published, published 2014. Also, The Last Energy War, The Battle Over Utility Deregulation, 2011. Solartopia, The Future of Energy, 2006, and then all the way back in 82, Killing Our Own, The Disaster of America's Experience with Atomic Radiation. And he's broken this book kind of into three. You can kind of see if you're watching on YouTube, you can see it's kind of broken into six cycles of American history, but he can talk more about that. So Harvey Wasserman, welcome back to the show. Hey, it's great to be with you, William. Really like awesome. It. Cool. So uh, for people who may not have heard our last show, maybe you can do a little bit about your personal history, overview of your personal history, and then what led you to write The People's Spiral of U.S. History. Okay, so um, um, weirdly enough, a documentary film has just come out um, uh, about the, the, the limited uh, uh, Victoria's Secret Angels and Demons. And I'm actually interviewed in it. Um, uh, I had no idea I was going to be in this film. Uh, but it's about Les Wexner and uh, the rise of the uh, limited and, and the horrible Jeffrey Epstein. And uh, I grew up in Columbus, Ohio, and they interviewed me about what it was like in Columbus, Ohio in the 1950s. So I got to be an activist, William. I was captain of my high school tennis team, and I, I was really all about winning. And uh, my parents were great Kennedy liberals. And, uh, and I got asked uh, as a junior in high school in 1962 to participate in a demonstration against a roller rink in Columbus, Ohio. And, you know, the great irony was that uh, eight years after Brown's Board of Education, uh, there was a segregated roller rink in Columbus, Ohio. Can you imagine that? So me and two other people, we went and picketed and we won. We, we stopped them from uh, being uh, segregated. I'm trying to turn off my phone here. And, um, um, and, and so I thought that was really cool that you could go out and demonstrate and, and make a, a, an impact like that. And it, it forever changed me because I was into sports. I was into winning. And here all of a sudden you could win uh, and force uh, desegregation just by going out and demonstrating. So I became, <laughs> it made me a lifelong activist. And I, I have since been involved. I, of course, was in the civil rights movement and the, and the war movement against the war in Vietnam. I got beat up twice uh, in Chicago demonstrating against the war in Vietnam. Uh, they wanted to send me to Vietnam. I wasn't, I wasn't about to go. I, did, I refused. Later, I actually, in life, I um, uh, debated 
General William Westmoreland, wow. the uh, the you know the per chief perpetrator, at least in the early stages of the war in Vietnam. <clears throat> I challenged him on stage at the University of Florida in Gainesville. I said that we were debating the nuclear freeze. And I said, uh, uh, General Westmoreland, why, we sh why should we listen to you? You lost the war in Vietnam. And he afterwards, um, the people who set up the talk uh, set it up so that he and I would be in the same room together. Everybody was kind of waiting to see what the hippie activist would say to the, uh, to the, the, the general. And um, he said, he came up to me and he said, you know, we did not lose the war in Vietnam. This is William Westmoreland, for God's sakes. He said, we, we, bought, we actually won because we bought time for uh, the ASEAN nations, which were the Philippines, uh, Singapore, uh, Malaysia, uh, Thailand, um, and, and uh, Indonesia. And Philippines, uh, Malaysia, uh, Philippines, Singapore, and, and Indonesia all had horrible dictators. And here, they, you know, they build the war in Vietnam which I think, William, was the major turning point for this country. The mess that we're yeah. in. That in JFK, that in JFK, yeah. It, it, yes, well, from the murder of JFK until the departure of Richard Nixon, we had 12 years of two U.S. presidents standing in front of the country day after day after day, lying, just telling total untruths. And, you know, I think that that is what really destroyed civility and trust in this country, is Lyndon Johnson and then Richard Nixon, just 300 guys coming home dead every week um, uh, for no reason whatsoever, this ridiculous war, squandering our, uh, our, our resources. And these two guys get up, presidents of the United States, and just lie. And of course- And there was all, it was a really fought by, by the poor too. 19-year-old, poor, black, Hispanic, white kids from the sticks who couldn't get out of the draft. or like oh, I think there were only like 10 guys from the Ivy League who died in the whole Vietnam War. Yeah. I mean, was, uh, and there was money-making. You mentioned your book, Brown and Root. There were all kinds of schemes where you know, I think even Lyndon Johnson's wife had some kind of business yeah. benefit oh, from you know, Vietnam. Johnson had a huge interest in a company yeah. called Brown and Root, which – could be, which became which Texas company became Albert, which was then tied to uh, Dick Cheney in the war in Iraq. And uh, but you know the whole backdrop was the killing of Kennedy, and um, nobody believed, and still nobody believes, and rightly so, that we got the right story on uh, on the killing of Kennedy. I mean, Lee Oswald did not kill John Kennedy, and mm -hmm. uh, uh, you know I think after all these years, it's pretty clear that the murder of John Kennedy was organized by Alan Dulles, the former, the founder of the CIA. Uh, that's not, you know, just because they're conspiracy theories doesn't mean there aren't conspiracies. I mean, the, the, this was a real, we know that there was a conspiracy to kill John Kennedy. He was the brains. Dulles was probably the brains of the entire yes, thing. Absolutely. There were other people, Johnson and all well, kinds he, of people. Involved. Dulles wouldn't have done it without being, have a sign off from LBJ. And he had to get approval from the from. Johnson to kill and kill Kennedy, and then of course Johnson put him on the Warren Commission report. I mean, you know, that's the Fox uh, writing about the hen house here. So, um, so this whole era of distrust and anger and and uh, dismay over the war in Vietnam is what led us to where we are now. With, with you know, nobody trusts each other. We're totally polarized, and um, and we're uh, economically 
the war was catastrophic, uh, morally, spiritually, you name it. Uh, that was the real uh, uh, downfall of the United States of America. Can we it really was and Johnson was so strange. Like I never knew until recently how curious he was. And even you include more quotes of how curious he was. Like you have this quote, it was without superior air power, America's bound oh, yeah. and throttled giant, impotent, and easy prey to any yellow dwarf with a pocket knife. Here's a and weird thing about Yeah, he was really much stranger than uh, you. He used you to saying. have people come meet with him. I was on the on the toilet. I mean, you know, I, I uh, there's a very famous story about him, uh, which is probably true. He he's he had this big ranch. He was driving a hundred miles an hour with his Lincoln Continental through the ranch. And he's got Secret Service guys with him, and uh, he's guzzling beer. And he pulls over to to take a leak, and he's peeing on the uh, the leg of a Secret Service guy. And the Secret Service guy says, oh, "Mr. President, you're." Uh, you're peeing on my leg, and he says, "I know that's my prerogative." You know that that's LBJ. So anyway, the the horrible situation we're in in this country now is directly tied to the war in Vietnam, and uh, uh, you know it's been downhill ever since, and we still haven't got a grip on our global empire. Now we did have, uh, you know, my generation, the, the baby boom. The, the, you know, we, William, I don't know what year you were born. I was born the last day. Sixty-eight. Sixty-eight. All right, so you're a boomer, and and so you know, we as as activists and boomers, the we had two agenda items. Number one was to end the empire. We and we failed. We didn't do that. We didn't get that done. But number two was to revolutionize the culture, and we did do that. And in uh, 1999, there was a famous speech by a guy named Paul Weyrich. He was a, a devout Catholic and a right wing uh, activist. And he basically said, "Now look, we we have lost the culture war." We're going to fight, continue to fight, but, uh, you know, the culture war is, you know, drug, sex, and rock and roll. I mean, we there are things that people take for granted now that were unheard of, even in the middle 60s. You know, uh, being openly gay, gay marriage, uh, uh, pot, um, uh, you know, uh, music, dress, all these things. I would never in a million years have gone on a, a TV show like yours uh, with uh, in a T-shirt. I'm wearing my... Colin Kaepernick shirt, by the way. I'm still waiting for him to uh, get to get, return uh, uh, hired by. I was thought the Raiders were going to hire him, but what the hell? But you know, um, uh, the the world is completely remade culturally, but we still have an empire, and the empire is killing us. And uh, but the culture war, you know, finally you wind up with this uh, Supreme Court, and they're <laughs> they want to take the country back to sixty and thirty. You know, uh, Puritan Boston. I'll talk a lot about basically the people's spiral of U.S. history, um, which you're looking at the cover. Thank you for putting it on. And it's available at all the usual um, uh, electronic outlets. If you want a personalized copy of this book, The People's Spiral of U.S. History, email me and I'll, I'll tell you how to get it. And then um, uh, I'll send you a personalized copy. But um, I can uh, put that email in the show notes too, so people can oh, check that out oh, on YouTube or email, Very simple. Solartopia, S O L A R T O P I A, at gmail.com. And I'll also tell you how to get on our week. We have a weekly Zoom call. William, I wish you'd come on actually, where we discuss election issues and also the environment. It's called the Green Grassroots Emergency Election Protection Coalition. We meet Mondays at 5 p.m. Eastern Time. 
We are about to have our 102nd meeting. We've been meeting since mm -hmm. April of 2020. We usually have 60, 80, uh, sometimes 100 people on. Um, and uh, it's I get a, the emails. I just haven't had time to put it into well, my schedule. But I'm definitely in, getting the emails. If you sign in, William, and raise your hand, I will acknowledge you, and we can post your uh, link in the chat. Oh, cool. cool. Uh, so we'd be glad to do that. Great. And uh, we have great people. And we uh, one of the things we did, um, uh, you know, the major crisis that we face in this country politically is the gerontocracy that's running the Democratic Party. You know, people ask, look at working people in this country, and they wonder why are they so frustrated? Why are they so angry? And uh, the reason is that nobody has delivered on any meaningful economic um, advancement for working people in this country since the 1970s. I mean, Nixon um, did the EPA, and he, you know, protected uh, food stamps and stuff like that. Uh, and then, si since then, uh, certainly since the Great Society, there's been no significant advancement for working people in this country, except for the uh, Affordable Care Act. It's the only thing that's been done for, to help working people. And so the Democratic Party, you know, which is allegedly, you know, we've acknowledged since the late 1800s that the Republican Party is the party of big money and reaction and corporations. And that's it used to be. And now it's more like a duopoly. But yeah, I, I know. Well, it used to be. No well, question. The, the Democrats are much better at getting that corporate money than they used to be. They, they have been. Yeah. Well, the yeah. corporations have been slightly more progressive. But, you know, um, uh, the, 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 the Republican Party is now the party of psychosis and fascism. And, and what we've got is the Democratic Party, which people have turned to to make social changes, utterly failed. I mean, if you know, in, in the people's power, the hardest time that I ha I love writing history. I love doing this book every minute. You know it. a lot. You have a definite, I mean, you write about uh, Howard Zinn, and then the other book that you were influenced by was the um, William Apple Williams Contours of American History. So you definitely have your hand on the pulse of American history. Well, what happened was I was always a student of history. I always loved history. My father loved history. He used to read uh, books at night, you know, before he went to sleep, history books. And so I grew up with it. My only ambition, when I, I never thought of myself being rich. Uh, I did think I would play center field for the Boston Red Sox. That never happened. But, you know, um, uh, um, I, I studied U.S. history. I taught briefly in the 70s, and then I had a life. I, I ran a business. I lived on a hippie farm. Started Helped start the anti-nuclear movement. Helped start the election protection movement. Uh, actually, it was an accident. But I actually helped um, with the early stages of the legalized marijuana movement. Oh, what happened was in 1967, I was the senior editor of the University of Michigan Daily. I was 21 years old. And uh, it was our, my responsibility, along with two other people, to put out the editorial page of the Daily. It was a big editorial page. And so I walked in on a Saturday in January of 1967. And I had nothing. I had a, like an empty page. So you could always fill the right side of the page with, you know, syndicated stuff. You get off the wire and that was easy. But the left side, you had to write. And I had been thinking, I had never smoked marijuana. And I was 21, you know, this is U of M, but I, I, I smelled it. I, I knew what the smell was because people around me were smoking it. 
Um, uh, and I didn't really know anything about it, but I decided to write an article. I didn't see why I should be illegal. So I, I decided to write an article advocating legalizing marijuana. This is in January of 67. And um, the guy before me, who had been editorial director before me, Jeff Goodman, he knew a lot about pot, and he had written a, uh, an article for legalizing it, but nobody paid much attention. So I went back and I got his piece, and I didn't plagiarize it, but I <laughs> used it for research, put it that way. Jeffrey was a very smart guy. And I created an editorial on the left side called The Use of Marijuana, It Should Be Legal. Now, this was a Saturday. So I put it in the paper, and then before it was published, I called the United Press. Now, I was the campus stringer for the United Press International. And as such, we this was before the age of the internet and before the 24-7 news cycle. So nothing ever happened on Saturday. Uh, and um, I called him up and I said, hey, some crazy hippie in Ann Arbor just wrote an, art, an article for legalizing pot. And they got all excited. And uh, I didn't tell him it was me. And I wrote the article and I put my name in. You know, I said Harvey Wasserman wrote this piece, but I didn't get a byline because I was just a stringer. And they didn't notice that I had just written an article about my own article. <laughs> so they put it out on the UPI wire, which went everywhere. Oh, wow. And on and Sunday, all these all these places in the world had these big Sunday papers to fill with no news. So my article on legalizing pot was in every paper in the world. Now, I had no idea this was going to happen. And I went to bed Saturday night. And I said, oh, man, you know, I made five bucks. On the article, you could buy two dinners for five bucks in 1967, you know. Right. And um, I went to sleep and I woke up at six in the morning. My phone rang. And it was uh, the, the uh, ABC News in New York, the biggest radio station in the country, saying, uh, are you Harvey Wasserman? Did you write this article for we guys? I have no idea how they got my number. But I, I guess I was listed. <laughs> and um, uh, I spent the next, like, two or three months on all these big radio TV shows. Uh, and I said, oh, well, you know, I've never smoked it, but uh, it's a civil liberties issue and blah, blah, blah. And that was one of the leading moments in the in the legalizing of pot. Um, it was just planting that seed, right? It's all come to fruition 50 years later. And the well, legalization, like, it yeah. just brought everything above board. It didn't end the world. It, nothing really even changed. I, I bet it hasn't even increased usage. No, no, it decreases. Yeah. When pot is legalized, the use goes down. Because, you know, when pot is, was illegal, we all smoked it because it was illegal. Because it was not. I, I, I like no, but I couldn't. I gave me a headache. I still don't smoke pot. It makes me dizzy. You know. I'm almost positive when Amsterdam legalized all those drugs and became drug legalization, they did a study of usage, and I think they found almost nothing moved. No, it like went it, down. It went yeah. down because yeah. kids will smoke it if it's illegal. They'll smoke it. If it's not legal. If it's legal, they, they, they'll smoke it if they like it, and they won't smoke it if they don't like it. I smoked pot in the, in the late 60s, after I did my round of all the TVs and all the blah, blah. Then I smoked it. And, you know, I liked the smell, but it made me, I, I just didn't like it. I, didn't, I, I only yeah. smoked on and off for like five years, and I didn't smoke again for decades. But you were way ahead of your time because it shows how much of a farce the drug war is. Oh, it's, it's a waste of money. No, no. It, it usually doesn't like you can use like Hunter Biden as an example. The rich guys get away with it. Uh, yeah. The poor guys go to jail for five years. Uh, it's, well, the, it's a I wrote about this and it was a big revelation actually. In the 2010s, uh, there was a book came out called New Jim Crow by a woman, a drug, a, a, um, a law professor at Ohio State. 
uh, Michelle something, I can't remember her last name. And um, she showed, and this is 100% true, the reason for the drug war, Richard Nixon couldn't care less about pot. He actually didn't care. What do you care if kids smoke pot? <clears throat> the drug war was designed to disenfranchise black people and to undercut the civil rights and anti-war movements. The drug war was Nixon's revenge for the movement against the war in Vietnam and for the civil rights movement. And they, you include a chapter of that in your book. I saw. Yes, it. absolutely. And, and they arrested 41 million people for pot and other drugs. And it was predominantly people of color and youth. And so, you know, when you arrest that many people, anybody, the, the cops can arrest anybody. Because if they want to arrest you, they'll just put pot on you and that'd be it. And so it was very, very political. And there's a quote by John Ehrlichman in the, in the Spiral of U.S. History uh, that says, you know, did we, we know pot was, of course we knew it wasn't dangerous. We didn't care. It was all about busting young people and people of color and preventing them from voting. It was part of Nixon's Southern strategy because the, the Republicans knew that there were enough people in the South, black people in the South, that they could never win the South if black people voted. Uh, and so, because they, they always, there'll always be a few white liberals, as we found in Reconstruction after the Civil War. So um, uh, they wanted to prevent black people from voting. That's what the drug war was all about. They had everything to do with marijuana. And then, of course, you know, Reagan comes in. And this is, this is the ultimate hypocrisy. Ronald Reagan, you know, was elected because the hostages did not get out there. Hostages held in Iran, you'll remember. The October surprise, right? The October surprise. So he cut a deal. George H.W. Bush, the former head of the CIA, very smart guy, George H.W. Bush. I met both Ronald Reagan and George H.W. Bush in New Hampshire in 1980. You know, back then you could, in the New Hampshire primaries, you could meet these guys. And so I had a conversation with uh, Bush one, actually. Very charming, uh, very, very intelligent, smart guy. I shook Reagan hand, Reagan's hand. I did not have anything to say to Ronald Reagan. But when I, the minute I looked at Ronald Reagan, the minute I saw him, I knew he was going to be president. There was just, he just had that aura about him, you know, very powerful. And, um, but anyway, Reagan made the deal with the Iranians uh, to let the, keep the hostages as long as, uh, you know, uh, they didn't let him out so that uh, Carter would lose. And Carter lost. And then, and then arms went to the Iranians. And then they sold the arms. And you may remember this, the Iran-Contra. I don't know if Reagan knew what the hell he was doing. You know, by the time he was um, in 85, 86, you know, he got shot and then he was old, he had Alzheimer's. There's no doubt. Yeah, he had some kind of dementia. Yeah, he was. Ronald dementia. Reagan, the, the person who ran the country after 1985 was Nancy Reagan. She was our second de facto female CEO, basically. Right. Sorry, this is LA. There's a helicopter. No, it's okay. It was also Wilson's wife. Wilson was incapacitated. His yes. wife was running the country for a couple of years. Well, Wilson like, got the flu and then he had a stroke. Yeah. Yes. Wilson ran the country for the last, the last year of his presidency. Yeah. And she was terrible. She was a lousy CEO. She killed the League of Nations. Nancy Reagan is the one who ended the Cold War. You know, all the right-wingers say, oh, Reagan ended the Cold War. He spent the, uh, the Russians into poverty. 
what what ended the cold what what destroyed the Soviet Union was Chernobyl, and uh, and Gorbachev was very clear on this. Uh, they, they, they didn't they had no idea how bad Chernobyl was. He didn't know. He hit it. He was not great during Chernobyl, and the people of Russia really really got angry you uh, Soviet Union, and that's why the Soviet Union collapsed. And Gorbachev's been very clear about that. Uh, so anyway, but so the Soviet Union's collapsing. Nancy Reagan, who was pro-choice, by the way, Nancy Reagan would be horrified by the uh, uh, the ban on abortion. She And she also ran the country in league with her astrologer. <clears throat> she was really out there. She did, she did stuff. When Rodney was uh, inaugurated as governor of uh, uh, California, <clears throat> her astrologer, whose name was Joan Quigley, told Nancy to have the inauguration after midnight. I mean, it was completely whacked out. Reagan is inaugurated like at 12, 10 in the morning. It was insane. And she did everything but with astrology. But she was basically, uh, you know, she was many ways a terrible person, very, very um, uh, Marie Antoinette kind of in her view of poor people. Um, um, uh, not a nice, not a pleasant person to be around, but she was pro-choice. She was very not a fundamentalist. The Reagans barely went to church. I mean, they went to church even less than Trump. And, but that's uh, the Republicans. They always have to come across as like hyper-evangelical for that vote. Right. And they, always, the Bushes are not either. So I don't they're, know. They're always having no, a not mom and dad. Not daddy. And the I know. The Bushes weren't. You know, George Bush one was always chasing other women. Bush too, he did not actually. Uh, I think he was afraid his wife was kill him. I mean, he, but you know, uh, um, um, but they're always having affairs and all this other stuff. But anyway, Nancy wanted to end the Cold War. She wanted a legacy and she met Gorbachev and they hit it off. She hated Gorbachev's wife, but hmm. Nancy and Gorbachev hit it off and she is the one who ended the Cold War. And, and um, you know, she was actually if you would rank Nancy Reagan as a president, uh, she would have been well above average. But one okay. of the things they did was total hypocrisy. They, they, they campaigned, they got this drug war going, again, to arrest black people and young people, to bust, to bring, bring chaos into the, into the black community. And simultaneously, while they're preaching and saying, just say no to drugs, absolutely outrageous, Reagan was funding the Contras in Central America who were bringing in literally tons of cocaine into the, into the inner cities. Absolutely devastating. They created the crack epidemic. Right. And that was just one side of it. There was mass. I mean, what? Uh, I forgot that a journalist who died who looked into it. Yeah. Thank you, Gary Webb. Well, if anybody wants to see the realities of the drug war and the hypocrisy of the Reagans, there are two things you got to watch. Number one is a Tom Cruise movie called American Made. And he portrays Barry Seal, who was <laughs> Barry Seal was a pilot for one of the major airlines. And he got he got bored. And the the, the, the film opens. He's piloting this, you know, big United or American airline jet going across the country with 200 people on it and just for the hell of it he like jumps the airplane up and up in the air and it's in the middle of the night everybody's screaming and he's laughing in the cockpit you know that's but he's he's great tom cruise is great in this movie 
American made. It's 90% true. Right. It is true. Like he had so much money, he didn't know how to launder it. Yes. He was coming in through Mena, Arkansas. He, he was a great a, pilot. Yeah, he was really great pilot. So. He, he lives in a tiny town in Arkansas, and Bill Clinton is governor, and Bill Clinton is, is letting him bring in the cocaine. And that's why they made him president, because they, he passed the test that he would be totally corrupt. And, you know, they bust Barry Seals, the feds do, and Clinton pardons him, get, lets him out. The second thing you got to see is the opening um, uh, uh, a segment of Narcos. It's a Netflix series, Narcos. I think I'm watching it. Uh, um, uh, uh, what, what was his name? Uh, Carlos Later, that one? Uh, or was it? Uh, guy. Um, uh, the, the drug dealer, the famous drug dealer. Who right. Hippopotamus is into right. for God's sakes. Um, uh, anyway, I'll, I'll remember his name. Um, and Pablo Escobar. Pablo Escobar. I mean, what a what a what a lunatic he was. So the first episode of this of the series, um, Narcos, spellbinding. And in, in both cases, you see that the Reagans absolutely were 100 percent aware, or at least the people around them, that they were funding the Contras and they were talking about the Contras overthrow the government in Nicaragua and what they, they compared them to the founding fathers, literally. Right, freedom fighters. They were freedom fighters. Freedom fighters, and these guys are just street thugs, street thugs, bringing in cocaine to the United States, destroying the inner cities, and and offering the excuse for the drug war. And uh, you know, so thankfully, you know, we have made progress. Uh, pot's legal now in most places, and uh, you know, are, are people wild in the streets? No. It's like the war in Vietnam. They said, okay, if, if we lose the war in Vietnam. Uh, these these uh, Asian communists are going to be marching into California. They did march into <laughs> California, and they started restaurants and businesses. A couple donut of donut shops now, you know. And, you right. know you the really domino know. effect was supposed to happen. That's why it had this. Now, that was the public you know, rationale. Yeah, horrible. The Ho Chi Minh just wanted liberation. If you look at Ho Chi Minh's career, he really just wanted to have self determination. It's the people who started this country wanted too. So he just wanted self-determination. He was just looking for help wherever he could get Very it. smart guy, Ho Chi Minh. Yeah, really amazing Very guy. But... And, you know, he was a dishwasher in uh, New York City in Chinese restaurants. I mean, mm -hmm. and, and uh, he was uh, all over the world. And he was very much... I know he went to France. Yeah, he was in France for sure. He became a communist basically because he, he needed help from the Russians and the Chinese. Like Castro. If we, if we had not put on an embargo and freaked out about Castro, he would have been, he would have been like Bernie. He wouldn't have been a dictator, I don't think. You know, he turned out to be not such a great guy, Castro. But um, uh, the, the Cuba would have been perfectly fine as a social democracy. They, they, they only went to communism, I believe, because we forced them to. And um, uh, no excuse whatsoever. And now you see, you know, Latin America, the big one, the big election, the most important election, almost as important as our midterms coming up in Brazil, where this horrible, this despicable piece of garbage, Bolsonaro, is has has announced, like Donald Trump, that he will not accept any um, uh, outcome of the election, which I believe is in October, if he doesn't win. This guy is destroying the Amazon. He's a total fascist, uh, uh, you know, a vicious, cynical thug, and um, you know, backed by the corporations. And there's a very good guy, Lula, running against him. Uh, a social democrat, you know, most of the world when they when when they want to become independent, and this, this is in my history book. I mean, 
you look at these uprisings in various countries, these people are social democrats. They're like Bernie. They want you medical care. They want they want to end the poverty and homelessness and hunger. They want free education. Those are the basic pillars. You know, medical care, housing, uh, 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 food, education, uh, um, uh, the basics of life. Um, uh, a lot of people, you know, I don't care if people want to be billionaires. And, you know, it's a little disturbing to see these morons like Elon Musk and uh, Jeff Bezos who have like one talent, Gates, you know, they have one talent which makes them billions of dollars. And then the rest of them, they're just, you know, phonies. Uh, you know, the only major billionaire I like in this country is Mackenzie Scott. She was uh, um, uh, uh, Bezos' uh, uh, wife. And they uh, they got divorced at Amazon, and she wound up with $40 billion. She's doing a great thing. She's a very cool person. But these guys, you know, they get tons of money, and they suddenly think they're better than the rest of us. And, and you know, Elon Musk obviously thinks he's the smartest guy that ever lives, and, and, and Zuckerberg and uh, all these other people, they're not, they're just, they just had one talent. And that was it. Now, Warren Buffett's a little different. He got, he has a broader view and Soros, but uh, these people, um, but what people want, and, and I talk about this in the spiral, uh, most people, all they want is the basics. And they want freedom. You know, the people in this, we've seen people in this country, we want the First Amendment, for God's sakes. And let me tell you, William, all these gun nuts, they never read the Second Amendment. James Madison, who I, well, I will tell you the way I got to know history, really, I studied it all these years. You, there's three ways you need to learn history. First of all, you, you have to make it, right? You have to be an activist. I've been an activist all my life because it's fun. I love being an activist. You learn history being an activist because you see how, how it's made. It's like sausage, you know? You see what really prompts social change. The second thing is um, you, you have to teach it. And uh, for 14 years, from the fall of 2004 until the spring of 2017, I taught at two colleges in Central Ohio. I probably taught U.S. history 100 times, and you know, early and late. And you really, <laughs> the rubber meets, meets the road when you got to stand in front of 25 uh, teen, late teenagers, early 20-somethings, and for 50 minutes, you got to keep them interested. Or I, I, I preferred 80 minutes. I liked a longer class because I like to tell stories. And the third thing about history you have to understand is it's just a series of great stories. And, you know, I love history because I love great stories. And as, as they say, you can't make this stuff up. Stuff happens in, your, in history that is just, you know, so phenomenal. If you wrote it, no one would believe it. For example, my favorite thing about history is the law of unintended consequences. That's when people, actors, you know, think they know what they're doing. They make these big historical moves and then stuff happens that they could never have counted on, right? My favorite unintended consequence story, which is very relevant now, there's a new series just came out called How to Change Your Mind by Michael Pollan, P-O-L-L-N. It's about LSD. And he's a brilliant, brilliant guy. I think it's on Netflix. Really worthwhile. I just watched the first episode. I read the book a couple of times, actually, because I did. I took LSD. 
which which I recommend, although under uh, only under controlled circumstances. I love Timothy Leary. I knew Timothy Leary. I don't know if hmm. But I've studied some aspects of him. Well, I kind of found him to be very irresponsible. Really, a smart guy, but kind of a kind of a jester. Completely irresponsible yeah. to tell young people to just take acid. That stuff is powerful, man. You do not. You know, I look back. I took acid a half dozen times and crazy. I took acid and then then rode the the public transit system in Chicago. Are you kidding me? That was insane. Uh, so, but acid itself is extremely powerful. And, and can be used. It was invented specifically to to as a tool for psychiatry, and right. it is absolutely essential. And you're going to see now as years goes for, go forward. Uh, I did an interview that will be used very very wisely and very widespread in the psychiatric profession. With great isn't that kind of Poland's approach? Is that a lot of these entheogens have positive? psychological things and i mean i think you even wrote in your book i think you even wrote what was the actor who said lsd cured him of his fear of death yeah carrie Carrie grant Grant. yeah carrie grant took acid uh very very profusely and profoundly and had great success with acid but you you don't take it and then they go ride the public transit system in chicago i went to see i was on acid my first acid trip i went to see um a movie called uh bedazzled with raquel wells and I thought it was the greatest movie ever made for <laughs> years. I thought bedazzled. And then I went back and I saw it. They remade it. The remake was actually pretty good with uh, Brandon Fraser and Elizabeth Hurley. But uh, I went back and saw the original. I couldn't watch it. It was, <laughs> it was just <laughs> it was so boring. But um, uh, anyway, the point is that um, this is the law of unintended consequences in my book. Uh, I loved writing about this. The CIA, LSD was invented in the 40s by a guy named Alfred Hoffman. And he's interviewed. Michael Pollan's series is now on How to Change Your Mind. It's on uh, Netflix. Absolutely. Hoffman's still alive? Yes. Oh, well, he oh, was. Wow. I think he oh, passed okay. away. I think he lived okay. to be 102. Oh, wow. So he's from Switzerland. He's this kindly old man. And he said, you know, look, we knew it. They knew it was not an accidental uh, uh, um, invention. They knew what they were getting with LSD. And um, uh, and he said we devised it at Sandoz as an aid to psychiatric uh, care. And it was used for years uh, until Leary came along. And then Leary comes out and says, tune in, uh, uh, drop, drop, drop out, you know, whatever. And turn on, tune in, drop turn out. On, tune in, drop out. And I love Tim Leary. I heard him speak once, uh, a couple of times, actually. He was very, uh, this is worth mentioning. I was at a, a pagan festival, literally called Starwood. In the woods somewhere, and he's he, the topic of his talk was uh, what do women want? Hmm. This is Tim Leary. So he gets up, he says, "Okay, I'm going to tell you what women want at the end, but first I'm just going to ramble on." And which he did, and he was very entertaining. And then at the end, he finishes, and some guy says, "Okay, what do women want?" And Tim Leary goes, "Everything." <laughs> so anyway, uh, 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 the CIA. And Leary and these people knew about LSD, but the CIA actually helped promote LSD. And this is the law of unintended consequences. What happened was that the CIA knew about LSD and they thought maybe they could use it as a weapon or for uh, mind control, you know, interrogating prisoners and stuff like that. So they did a series of experiments at Stanford and they put up signs around campus. Come 
uh, take this, do whatever with this, and, and we'll pay you 25 bucks. So they, they, Ken Kesey, who's a young writer in his 20-something at Stanford, I don't even think he was enrolled. I think he was just on the campus in Palo Alto, comes in and they give him LSD. And they say, what do you think? And he said, fantastic. And he takes LSD and he spreads it, you know, with the merry pranksters and, right. and his writing. <laughs> I mean, so flew over the was actually responsible in part for the spread of LSD. The other guy they gave it to, and this is phenomenal, was a guy named Robert Hunter. Robert Hunter, also on the campus in Palo Alto, living in a car with Jerry Garcia from the Grateful Dead. So Robert Hunter takes LSD and he went on and wrote all the Grateful Dead songs, <clears throat> including the great line. Robert Hunter wrote this line on the CIA's LSD. Wow. Sometimes the light's all shining on me. Other times I can barely see. Lately, it occurs to me what a long, strange trip it's been. That's the, you know, the extant line of the Grateful Dead all those years. It was written by Robert Hunter on the LSD given to him by the CIA. I mean, yep. But those CIA experiments were all over the place. They were screwing around with LSD, all kinds of weird. Yeah, well, they stuff. did cause one suicide. I mean, they didn't tell people. Well, that guy didn't commit suicide. Olson was probably killed. I think his son kind of came to the conclusion that he was objecting. Olson was objecting to some of the experiments, the wow. ethics of the experiments, and they threw him out the window and said he had a bad trip. Yeah. You can watch Wormwood is the name of the documentary. Errol Morris, excellent documentarian. And then the son's kind of interesting, too, because... He's looking into those mind control experiments, and Errol Morris's son is heavily, he's a total uh, entheogen, what do they call it? Uh, not Vistanol, what's the word? Like, uh, yeah, he's a, he's a drug. He, he goes around and experiments on all these drugs, licks toads, and all that stuff. His well, name is Hamilton, know, Hamilton Morris. I just did an interview with a truly great guy who you should interview, um, uh, uh, Jim Fadiman. So Jim Fadiman was a graduate student at Harvard who happened to have as his professor, Richard Alpert, who became Ron 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 And they had a very, very long relationship. And Jim also wound up at Palo Alto. And he took LSD back in the day. And his wife, a girlfriend, Dorothy Fadiman, is a fabulous human being, makes doc made a do great documentary film on stolen elections. And I just interviewed Jim for two hours. He is the godfather of microdosing. Hmm. And, you know, there are millions and millions of people now who are taking very small doses of LSD. Because what Jim realized is, listen, you don't have to take much of this stuff. It's really powerful. And if you take a, a small dose, you'll have, you know, a couple hours maybe. And it'll, it'll be manageable. And you're, you'll see the world differently. They're doing it all the time in Silicon Valley. People well, are microdosing yeah, and going to work. Yeah. These guys. So I interviewed him for a, a major medical journal called Hustler. Are you familiar with the Hustler? Yeah, I didn't know that was a medical journal. I, I, I refer to Hustler as the American Annals of um, uh, um, Anatomy, uh, uh, Acrobatic right. Anatomy. And, <laughs> you know, Hustler actually now is uh, one of the biggest female owned businesses in the world. Really? Well, Isn't it Mary, owned by his wife? It's owned by uh, what's the Larry's widow. Larry Larry's widow, right. And his widow uh, is running the business. And, you know, my uh, my article, I've been writing for Hustler for years. Oh, I didn't know that. 
Well, he uh, had a he has a whole magazine empire though, doesn't he? Yes, he I mean, does. He, he, he had all kinds of real technical manuals. He did all kinds of stuff. in the video now, and you know, huh. we all have the great um, um, consolation of knowing that as many people as are watching Tucker Carlson and all these other right wing creeps um, and Bannon and all these fascists that are in the media, as many people as are watching that, ten times as many. Are watching porn, um, and, oh, and no way, a hundred times more. Yeah, no way. And, no, no not ten one, times. <laughs> must be. You know the number one watched porn is in in North America. I thought that there was some kind of stat. Was it like steps? What People was it? Lesbians, yeah, lesbians. Because you they know, had some kind of map where, like, uh, know, was it Pornhub? could tell countries and what people's interests were. Yeah, well, they, they put out a chart, and, and yeah, most chart, people yeah. in North America, it's different in other countries, but most people in America, North America watch lesbians. And, What's um, the name? Spell Fadiman's last name for me. F-A-D-I-M-A-N. James Fadiman. He's a great guy. I'll, I'll put you in touch with him. You say yeah, that'd be great. He is the godfather of microdosing. And, right. um, you know, um, there is a, a, a Reddit site with uh, like millions of people who are taking, who are doing microdosing, and which is the way to go. I mean, okay, if you don't have a um, a, a professional with you and you want to check it out, just take a you know a small hit of mushrooms. It was funny. I asked him what in the in the community in the psychedelic community, what is the perceptive difference between acid and mescaline, and you know between the manufactured stuff and the the mushrooms. And he said, well, basically, it's viewed kind of like the difference between red and white wine. Hmm. <laughs> and he says, that, you know, acid is a little harsher. It's a little more industrial. Mescaline is more organic. And uh, that's the bottom line here. But there's no doubt that these um, uh, um, psychedelics uh, have changed the world. The, 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 the personal computer was invented on psychedelics. These hmm. Steve Wozniak. And Steve uh, Jobs and, and um, Alan Kay and, and Jim, all these other people were in Palo Alto. They're all taking acid. That's how, and they're literally guys who are writing code who would run into a block, you know, get writer's block, would drop acid. And then they solved the problem. Kerry yeah. Mullis invented the PCR test on acid, like yeah. how to repli replicate virus, uh, viral DNA. And, and also like Alcoholics Anonymous. Alcoholics Anonymous. Anonymous was founded by a guy who was on acid. Very clearly attributed his ability to set up Alcoholics Anonymous to his taking acid. So the, here you have the irony of millions of people kicking alcohol who uh, were got, being guided through a regimen that was invented on LSD. That's the reality of it. So, um, you know, uh, my I took enough acid way back when uh, when I, I first started writing to people's spiral views history in 1970, uh, I was a very humble 20 something. And I had decided I'd been at the Chicago, I got in the crappy out of me and I'm very radicalized. I was in SDS. I mean, it was an easy progression for me because my parents were very liberal. And so, you know, my rebellion was to go further left and uh, they supported me all the way through my, I, you know, the number one thing to having a great life is to having great parents. And as a parent, the only thing I knew about being a parent was to show physical affection to my children. And I hugged my kids. I had five daughters. I was very lucky. Oh, wow. 
and uh, I, I, I my, and now grandchildren. We're in double digits on the grandchildren. Oh, congratulations! And thank you. I mean, it's the greatest blessing. Uh, at least for you know, there are plenty of people who don't want to have kids, and that's perfectly fine. And in the world of those of us who want to have kids, there was a. a, a this is in the history book also. Doctor Benjamin Spock, the baby doctor, <coughs> in 1947. He published what became the, the best-selling book in, in human history, except for the Bible and the Boy Scout Manual, um, um, and uh, Baby and Child Care. He did it with his wife, by the way. His wife always complained that he never gave her proper credit, and that's that's a common story. We just saw that from Keen, the artist who did Kids with Big Eyes. It was his wife, it wasn't him. Hmm. So anyway, a Ben, uh, who I got arrested with at the Pentagon in 1980, wonderful guy, um, uh, very really big boy. Ben Smock was 6'6". He um, he writes this book, and this, and one of the things he said, which was very controversial at the time, was you the you you the great line to women who are having kids who were afraid that they didn't know what to do. He said, "quote You know more than you think you know." In other words, when you're raising children, follow your instincts, and the instinct that he promoted was affection. You should be affectionate to your children. And and show them physical affection, and, uh, and 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 show them love, which a lot of people didn't think was good at the time. They were said, "Oh, Ben, he's um, uh, lack of discipline." Blah blah. Spock did not believe that, but Spock believed in disciplining children. But you show them love, compassionate discipline, while you're raising your kids. And uh, so they did a study. It was amazing. This was so controversial. A study was undertaken in the late 1940s of a cohort of, I don't know, two, 300 kids. And the, the one thing that they tested for was how, what kind of life are you going to have if your parents show you affection? So they found kids who were shown affection and then kids who weren't. And they tracked them for 40 years. It's one of the longest cohort studies ever done. And they found that, with, and I have the article right, right here somewhere here. I have the article and, and from the New York Times. Uh, the title, it came out in uh, a, uh, 1991 by Daniel Goleman, G-O-L-E-M-A-N. You can look it up. Parents' warmth is found to be key to adult happiness. And they found that the, having affectionate parents, parents who showed you love, was a better indicator of having a successful life than race, class, divorce, those three things were transcended by whether you had parents who were warm and affectionate. It's amazing. And that's all I knew when we had, to, I, I was totally unqualified to be a parent. The only thing I knew, well, first of all, thank God I had girls. And then the only thing I knew was, you know, we just showed them that we loved them every day. I still do. You know, I, I talk to my kids all the time and, Hey, I love you. And you know, and whatever you do is great. And, and that's it. And the same with the grandchildren, the grandchildren. So we discipline them, but you know, and, and that's so these 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 fascists now running around talking about pedophilia and all this other stuff. You know, it's very very detrimental because it it, it uh, chills uh, people who are affectionate to their children, which you have to be. Uh, you know, that's why uh, 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 kids go bad. I mean, um, uh, look at Putin. Look at Trump. Trump had horrible parents. For God's sakes, you know his father. Didn't they ship him off to a military no, academy or something? Yeah, and uh, you know when he they had a pay, he had a paper route when he was a kid, 
and he was delivering papers from the back of a limousine. That was, you know, Trump. Trump's grandfather uh, ran a house of prostitution. He was a human trafficker. And Trump's father was a Ku Klux Klan supporter, terrible uh, racist. And uh, actually, Woody Guthrie, the great folk singer, wrote a song about Donald Trump's father, what a horrible landlord he was. So, you know, this follows in, in, in traditions here. So what we have now, William, in this country, and, and, and I talk about this in the book, is a massive generational changeover that the Democratic Party can't bring itself to get out of the way. Because um, 50% of the country now is born after 1981. You have millennials and you have Zoomers. And the millennials, you know, Generation Z, the millennials and the Zoomers are the least racist, most tolerant, most, you know, mixed race um, our generation in history. I just read a piece, George Will, the right-wing columnist for the Washington Post, ranting uh, against the millennials because they don't read books. Well, you know, they, they were raised with the Internet. It's a whole other world. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and the, But the bottom line is that these kids um, uh, uh, were raised in the wake of the Cultural Revolution of the 60s and 70s. When the baby boomers, uh, you know, us, we won. We, we did not stop the empire, but we won the culture war. And so now, you know, people take this for granted now. I mean, gay marriage. When I, I went to the University of Michigan, very hip school in many ways. I graduated in 1967, right in the heart of, of the cultural upheaval. And I didn't even know anything about gays. I didn't know anything about homosexuality at all. My best friend turned out to be gay, and I had no idea. <laughs> and, you know, what was what was the famous uh, riot? Stock Stonewall. Stonewall. When was that? Stonewall, the summer of 1969. I talk a lot about oh, it. There was a bar, uh, and, the, and it's still there. It's preserved. It's a national monument now, which was unthinkable, of course, back in the day. But it was a gay bar, and the cops, uh, New York City cops, when they didn't have anything better to do. They would just go into the Stonewall and beat the hell out of, of the guys in the bar. It was mostly guys, but there were a few lesbians involved. And um, finally, in the summer of 69, they just rebelled. They came out and they started, they, they were fighting fistfights with the cops in the streets. And it was filmed. Thank God it was filmed. So there was a, there was a documentary on Stonewall. Uh, and then there were Stonewall unions and all this other stuff, you know. And then people just don't think anything anymore about being gay. And, and people take it for granted, but it was They not- used to have to blackmail people gay. Now you, it doesn't even matter. No. Cops used to, like, catch gay guys and then try to blackmail them and get money and all this kind of stuff. Oh, None yeah. of that happens anymore, yeah. No, it's, 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 it's amazing, yeah. you know, and, 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 um, and also women, you know. Um, uh, the women's rights movement is incredibly important. And, uh, you know, uh, the, the, the number, and I talk about this, the, the history book sets up a, a dichotomy, a... a, a um, um, uh, dialectic between the Puritan culture, these Puritans who we're seeing now came here in 1630. You know, the Supreme Court is a Puritan court. They want to they want to make it 1630 again. And they they plowed in when they, when the whites came here. There was this whole idea that there, it was a wilderness, and that the uh, and the indigenous were uh, primitive. And the the reality is that when the whites came here from Europe. Is starting in 1492, and then in, in, in America, what became the United States, uh, the the uh, uh, 
the Mayflower in 1620, and then the Pilgrims in 1630. Although people overlook, you never read about this in the history books. Um, there were Spaniards were all over the Southwest in the 1500s. I mean, you know, Santa Fe, California was in, colonized by the by the Spaniards way before the British came to New England. Yeah, I think that uh, Hernan Cortez was 1530. Yeah, there was already a rebellion yeah. in 1540. The, um, the indigenous rose up and wiped out a Spanish colony in Santa Fe. That's why you wound up with horses in North America, by the way. The Spaniards brought horses, and they had a bunch of horses with them in Santa Fe. They brought the Arabian horses, who may have come from China, I don't know, but there, were, there was an indigenous horse that kind of went extinct. It was small. But the, the big horses that you ride, the Spaniards brought them, and they had them penned up in uh, Santa Fe, and the Indians, uh, indigenous, over, overrode, overran the place, and the, the horses escaped. And then they spread all over the West, and that's how you had rideable horses in the in the Great West. And the the Plains Indians got the horses, and that's how, and they they didn't really have horses to ride until the late 1500s in the in the in the West. That it changed the whole nature of the indigenous society. But the important thing is that when the whites came here in the, in the East, uh, they actually encountered the most advanced democracy in the history of the world. And they never talked about that, but the indigenous um, uh, in, in what's now upstate New York, the Iroquois, which is a French word, they were called, they called themselves the Haudenosaunee, the people of the Longhouse. And they had, in the, it's, it, it's not clear exactly when it happened. It could have been 1100s up to the 1500s. They had five tribes that were always at war. And they had a peacemaker. His name was Daganawida. And he went around and he preached that the wars should end. He had a sidekick named uh, uh, Hiawentha, who was a great speaker. Daganawida was a stutterer. And they went from tribe to tribe and said, hey, look, stop the wars. Let's have a confederacy. <clears throat> and it was put together, finally, by a woman, Jigansasei which is in the title of my book. And Jigansasei was a matriarch, and she was in the middle of what's now upstate New York in the Onondaga. And there was a war chief called Tadadaho, and he was a ferocious guy. And the legend is that uh, Jigansasei, uh, in, in, in union with uh, Diganawida and uh, Hiawentha, combed the snakes out of Tadadaho's hair. And they formed the Iroquois Confederacy. Now, the Confederacy like most North American tribes, it wasn't true in the Central and South America, but the North American tribes were all won by women, or mostly. They were matriarchies. And the women ran the Haudenosaunee Confederacy. And they would have a, um, um, a Congress. In the winters, the, the tribes would send delegations, and the chiefs were all men. And, and, uh, but the men could be removed. They were chosen and could be removed by the women. I saw a great documentary about the Iroquois. It was wonderful. And they interviewed this Iroquois woman, Audrey Shenandoah. And they asked her, why is it that if the women run the tribes, the women ran the, fa the uh, families, they raised the children, they ran the gardens. The men went out and hunted, and then they sat around and had important talks, you know. So the women, she, Audrey Shenandoah smiled, and she said, well, the men, we, we let the men be chiefs because it makes them feel important. 
and it gives them something to do, <laughs> you know. And but you know, they get the women. It's another house. Yeah, it's another house. Yes. Yeah. So the women ran the show, and and this is critical: the women controlled their own bodies. Uh, abortion was very well known among all the native societies. It was done with herbs. If a woman had an unwanted pregnancy that she wanted to get rid of, she just drank some tea and took some potions and did whatever was necessary, and the, the pregnancy went away. There was no discussion. I mean, the men had nothing to say about this. If you'd have asked an indigenous woman pretty much anywhere in North America from 20,000 years ago until the 1800s about abortion, they, you got a blank stare. It was just part of the deal, you know? And these, these jerk-off Supreme Court justices like Alito, Citing historical precedent, the historical precedent of the uh, of the indigenous societies in North America for twenty thousand years was that women controlled their own bodies, as well as the body politic. Now, William, the the, the basic supposition of this history book, which I think is one hundred percent true, is that the number that, you know we have transitions now from white to non-white. From you know rich to poor, from all the from drugs, the, the the culture, all this other stuff going on, the number one power transition going on on the earth today is the the transfer of power from men to women. Hmm. That's what's happening. More importantly than anything else, sixty percent of the college students in this country more now are women. More than half the law students are women. I'm married to a lawyer, so believe me, I know the importance of that, that reality. I mean, and that's what the men can't handle. You know, the, this, this so-called Christian, uh, there's nothing Christian about the evangelical movement. Jesus would be horrified by what he's seeing here. You know, Thomas Jefferson wrote an amazing book. It was, it was published in 1820. It was called The, the Life, Life and Morals of... Jesus of Nazareth. Exactly. And what he did was, you know, the, the founders of not the, the white founders, the guys who were in the Constitutional Convention, if you'd have asked George Washington, are you a Christian? He just said yes. If you would ask John Adams, Abigail Adams, Samuel Adams, John Quincy Adams, Thomas Jefferson, James Madison, Ethan Allen, James Monroe, and most importantly, Ben Franklin. And Thomas Paine, are you a Christian? They would said, no. Are you kidding? They were deists. They were Unitarians. They were agnostics. They were atheists. If you ask them, is the new United States that you just invented a Christian nation? You, they would have said, are you kidding? Absolutely not. And George Washington, who was a Christian, would have agreed. George Washington was very clear that this was a secular country and that there was no... And the, there was no official religion, and that uh, the First Amendment to the Constitution of the United States says Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or abridging the, the, the freedom thereof. I mean, these people absolutely did not think, had no uh, um, conception whatsoever of the United States as a Christian country. And their view of Christianity is very, very different from. You know, it may not have been formulated by Christians, but they're the number one religion, certainly around that time, 
probably up to the 50s or something was Christianity. Some well, among the whites, yeah, you know, but the well, was the largest population, yeah. <clears throat> but it was never ever meant codified in any way, shape, or form to be a Christian nation, and they wouldn't have agreed on. And, and these guys weren't Christians. Uh, William Howard Taft was not Christian. Martin Van Buren was not Christian. I mean, these guys did not um, uh, uh, adhere to the Christian theology in the very beginning, and they were deeply influenced by the Iroquois, especially Ben Franklin. <clears throat> the real father of our country is Ben Franklin. <clears throat> I consider the Ben Franklin still to be the greatest genius in the history of Western civilization. I believe he was the most influential of all human beings that have ever lived, <clears throat> at least in the West. <clears throat> you know, not only was not only did Ben Franklin discover electricity, but he codified it. He 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 studied it. He 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 categorized it. He organized our knowledge of electricity. <clears throat> what could be more important? And, you know, he invented the, the windsurfing. He invented bifocals, the, the Franklin stove, the lightning rod. I mean, you know, this guy never had know. a formal education. He was the 16th of his father's 17 children, this guy. And here he, here he was. He changed the world more than anybody. Oh, so he was farmer's Almanac, father. right? Farmer's Almanac. What's that? Didn't he make the Farmer's Almanac? Oh, poor Richard. Poor Richard's Almanac. Poor Richard. He was... He was the first media baron uh, of the United States. He invented the internet in a certain sense because he had <clears throat> a syndicated publications and he ran the post office. The post office was the first, he, he organized the postal service, which was, you know, the internet of the day. So, and he was a great liberal. Ben Franklin, <clears throat> this is a critically important story in our history. Nearly all the white people, in America, in North America, in the uh, British colonies, <clears throat> prior to the revolution, were racists. Everybody, all the whites believed that, that, that whites were superior, virtually all, except for one group, the Quakers. The Quakers were a religious sect from England, and they believed that all people were equal, and that, uh, you know, they believed in uh, living simply. They were quite brilliant, the Quakers, um, and, uh, and they were, of course, in Philadelphia. There was no other city in the world like Philadelphia. The Quakers dominated. There was equality. There was democracy. Women had rights. Um, you know, women could vote in in, uh, in New Jersey, which was a Quaker colony until 1808. And Franklin, Franklin was not a Quaker, but he lived in, he, he didn't have patience for the church or any of that stuff, but he lived in Philadelphia. So he had two slaves, Ben Franklin did. And he believed the whites were superior. Then one day he went to a school which had to be a Quaker school, which was integrated. There were black and white kids in the school. And as a scientist, he sat there and he studied the black and white kids. And he came to the conclusion that the black kids were just as smart as the white kids. And Ben Franklin, being Ben Franklin, changed his mind immediately and ceased being a racist, freed his slaves, and became an abolitionist. Became the first major white abolitionist in America alongside the Quakers. The only signer of the Declaration and Constitution and who, who um, uh, petitioned Congress for the abolition of slavery before he died in 1790. And, you know, that's Ben Franklin. And, that, and then Tom Paine was basically his... Uh, his apprentice. His apprentice. Uh, Har uh, Harvey, we are at a, over an hour. I got to run. Is there anything you'd like to add or anything I missed? I already want to book in this. Uh, oh, yeah, we got to change that. We got to get overthrow the Democratic Party. 
there has to be the Democratic Party is a gerontocracy. Uh, Schumer, Pelosi, uh, Steny Hoyer, Jim Clyburn, um, uh, Biden, they're all in their 70s and 80s. You got a whole giant generation ready to take over. And we we got to stop fascism in this country. And the only way to yeah, do but it isn't there isn't the right of gerontocracy, too? I mean, yes, it is. You just have to stop gerontocracy. You yes. can't fly a plane past 66 years old, but you can be a geezer in the, uh, the biggest country in the world. I know. I mean, and I'm 76. Biden's not in great shape. No, neither one of them. So, you know, the, Bill, I'm, I'm a big fan of AOCs. I'm a huge fan of Bernie's. And, you know, this whole yelling and screaming about socialism. Look, Medicare for all, saving the environment, abolishing student debt, free college education, abolish homelessness, hunger, and poverty. These are the basics. We are social Democrats, and that's what's got to happen in this country. That's the standard in almost every European country. That's the funny thing. Right. Like and if you're in Amsterdam or Sweden, France. So, And the other thing is, and I'll finish with this, William, the only thing that's okay. going to change and win this country is grassroots organizing. The Democrats continue to spend all their money on on TV. We need grassroots organizing, which is what won us. And come on our calls, William. Uh, we, we, we gather and talk about this every Monday. 5 p.m. Eastern Time. Email me directly, solartopia at gmail. The website is electionprotection2024.org. And we, we have to get all the money that goes to the Democratic Party has got to go to grassroots organizing. And then, then we'll save the country. That's it. Great. And this book is out. It's on Amazon. You can get a copy through Harvey. Through yeah. the email, which I will include in the show notes on YouTube and the podcast. So you can check that out. You can reach out to him and if you have any questions. But you can tell you've done your homework. There's so much uh, knowledge and different uh, facets of the U.S. history that left out of a standard high school textbook. So, again, author's name, Harvey Wasserman. Title is The People Spiral of U.S. History. Thanks so much for your time. Hey, man, you're great. Come on. Right, cool. And please join us on our calls. I'll, I'll All right, cool. All right, stay All right. Stay Take care.